This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Happy New Year and welcome to episode 19, Marie Corelli's Writing. To sort of economize our time this week, Eleanor and I split up. She will be bringing you an interview with Marie Corelli expert, Joanna Turner, who is a PhD student at Loughborough University in the UK, and we're so happy she agreed to chat with us on the podcast. Uh, And I, of course, will be bringing you this episode, the writing episode. Um, so our coverage of Corelli's writing process today is going to be pretty brief because we already talked about it fairly frequently in our biographical episodes on Corelli, um, and there's not really much more to say. I'll kind of give you a quick recap in a moment, uh, but not to worry. The writing sample that I've chosen for you today is a sort of treatise on what Corelli considers the happiest life in the world, the life literary. I thought this was an especially uh, pertinent piece to bring to you um, at the new year because I think we're all thinking about how to make our lives happier, what kind of to winnow away, what to focus on, um, what brings us joy and what doesn't, and uh, what we can do to make change. It's a, it's a time of year that really sort of fosters those thoughts whether or not we believe in resolutions. Um, and so... I think it will be interesting to see what Corelli has to say about the life literary and a happy life in general. So, a brief recap of Corelli's writing process. We know that, fairly consistently, Corelli wrote from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. every day. Well, probably Monday through Saturday. It's unlikely she wrote on Sundays. Maybe she did. And that sort of habit is certainly in place during the height of her writing career when she's living with Bertha and her brother Eric, but um, may have started earlier than that. Um, We also know that Corelli's early attempts at becoming published were, (laughs) let's say, non-traditional. So she at first tried the it's who you know technique using her father or stepfather or adoptive father's uh, name to sort of try to leverage her own publication with people like Blackwood. And as we noted in our biographical episodes, this did not really go over well. So she would send in pieces, signed Minnie McKay, and then she would send these badgering letters to sort of check why they hadn't been published yet, assuming that as a matter of course they must be published. Um, And often in these letters, she would sort of take on the persona of a little girl who's wheedling a father figure for a treat. Eventually, she starts using the name Marie Corelli uh, to more success than she does using her given name. And uh, I think while she is always really quick to the correspondence pen, she maybe sort of takes on a more traditional approach to submitting work with increased success. 
Looking back on her career in later life, Corelli would attribute her literary success to writing straight from the heart without worrying about the opinions of the critics. Which is a little bit misleading, as you know if you've listened to the biographical episodes, because Corelli worried ceaselessly about the opinions of the critics. Um, even though she eventually sort of stopped playing by their rules and sending them review copies, she um, still, like, a literary career sort of lives and dies by the word. Not only the words you write, but the words other people write about you. So even though she stopped sort of playing by rules, she did really attend to the way that she was represented in the press and sort of control it as much as anyone could control it, which is not a lot even, especially in the 19th century. Um, but I think this quote sort of speaks to a freedom that she found in realizing that the press would never have a good opinion of her. And so instead of trying to make that good opinion happen, she could focus on the people who did really believe in her and love what she wrote, which was the enormous reading public who supported her when she stopped um, seeking critical praise and when she stopped working with the circulating libraries. So that was ultimately a really smart career move on her part. Anyway, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll move on to Corelli's essay, The Happy Life, which was published in Strand Magazine in July of 1904. So just after the Victorian period, but at the height of Corelli's career. Be right back. Happy Life by Marie Corelli Most people want to be happy if they can. I suppose it may be safely set down without fear of contradiction that no one who is sane and healthy willfully elects to be miserable. Yet the secret of happiness seems to be solved by very few. People try to be happy in all sorts of queer ways. In speculation, land-grabbing, dram-drinking, horse-racing, bridge-playing, newspaper-running, and various other methods which are more or less suited to their constitutional abilities. But in many cases, these channels, carefully dug out for the reception of a perpetual inflowing of the stream of happiness, appear very soon to run dry. I have been asked scores of times what I consider to be the happiest life in the world, and I have always answered without the least hesitation, the life literary. In all respects, it answers perfectly to the description of the happy life portrayed by that gentle 16th century poet, Sir Henry Wotton. How happy is he born and taught that serveth not another's will, whose armor is his honest thought, and simple truth his utmost skill. Herein we have the vital essence of all delight, honest thought, simple truth, and, in the quote, serveth not another's will, end quote, glorious liberty. For chiefest among the joys of the life literary are its splendid independence, its right of free opinion, and its ability to express that opinion. 
An author is bound to no person, no place, and no party, unless he or she willfully elects to be so bound. To him or her, all the realms of nature and imagination are entrance-free. The pen unlocks every closed door, and not only is the present period of time set out like a stage scene for contemplation and criticism, but all the past ages, with their histories and the rise and fall of their civilizations, arrange themselves to command in a series of pictures for the pleasure of the literary eye and brain. And it is just as easy to converse in one's own library with Plato on the immortality of the soul as it is to good-humouredly tolerate Mr. Malick and his little drawing-room philosophies. For a book is more or less the expression of the mind, or a part of the mind, of its writer. And inasmuch as it is only with the moral and intellectual personalities of our friends and enemies that we care to deal, it matters little whether such personalities be three or four thousand years old or only of yesterday. And to live the life literary means that we can always choose our own company. We can reject commoners and receive kings, or vice versa. The author who is careful to hold and maintain all the real privileges and rights of authorship is a ruler of millions, and under subjection to none. The position is unique, and, to my thinking, unequaled. There are many, of course, who will by no means agree with me as to the superior charms of the life literary over all other lives, and such objectors will be found mostly in the literary profession itself. Unsuccessful authors, particularly those who are anyway troubled with dyspepsia, will be among them. Tied authors also, and by tied authors, I mean the unhappy wretches who have signed contracts with publishers several years ahead and are, so to speak, dancing in fetters. Authors who count the number of words they write per day, like potatoes, and anxiously calculate how much a publisher will possibly give for them per bushel, are not likely to experience any very particular happiness while they are measuring out halfpence in this fashion. And authors who run after society, and want to be seen here, there, and everywhere, are bound to lose the gifts of the gods one by one as they scamper helter-skelter through the world's vanity fair, while they may be perfectly sure that the great or swagger persons with whom they seek to associate will be the first to despise and neglect them in any time of need or trouble, as well as the last to support or help them in any urgent cause which might be benefited by their assistance. On this point, we have only to remember the melancholy experience of Robert Burns, who, after having been flattered and feasted by certain individuals who were, in an ephemeral sense, influential for the time being, either through their rank or their wealth, was afterwards shamefully neglected, and finally, notwithstanding the various social attentions and courtesy he had at one time received, he was left, when ill and dying, in such extremity as to be compelled to implore his publisher for the loan of five pounds. What had become of all his wealthy and influential friends? Why, they were exactly where all influential persons would be now in a similar case, otherwise engaged. They are always otherwise engaged when their help is needed. Nothing can be more deplorable than the position of any author who depends for success on a clique of distinguished or society persons. He or she has exchanged independence for slavery the nectar of the gods for a base mess of pottage, and the true happiness of the life literary for a mere miserable restlessness in constant craving after fresh excitement, which gradually breeds nervous troubles and disturbs that fine and even balance of brain without which no clear or convincing thought is possible. Again, authors who deliberately prostitute their talents to the writing of lewd matter unfit to be handled by cleanly-minded men and women need never hope to possess that happy and studious peace which comes from the pure intent to do the best, purely, and leave to God the rest. 
For the highest satisfaction in the life literary is to think that perhaps, in a fortunate or inspired moment, one may have written at least a sentence, a line, a verse, that may carry comfort and a sense of beauty to the sorrowful or hope to the forlorn. While surely the greatest pang would be to know that one had cast the already despairing soul into a lower depth of degradation, or caused the sinner to revel more consciously in his sin. But are there no drawbacks, no disappointments, no sufferings in the life literary? Why, of course there are. Who would be such a useless block of stone, such a senseless lump of unvalued clay, as not to ardently wish for drawbacks, disappointments, and sufferings? Who that has a soul at all does not pray that it may be laid like glowing molten iron on the anvil of endurance, there to be beaten and hammered by destiny till it is of a strong and shapely mold, fit for combat, nerved to victory? And I maintain that such drawbacks, disappointments, difficulties, and sufferings as the profession of literature entails are sweeter and nobler than the cares besetting other professions, inasmuch as they are always accompanied by never-failing consolations. If the pinch be poverty, the true servant of literature can do with less of this world's goods than most people. Luxury is not called for when one is rich in idealism and fancy. Heavy feeding will not make a clear, quick brain. Extravagant apparel is a necessity for no one, and genius was never yet born of a millionaire. If the thorn in the flesh is the petty abuse of one's envious contemporaries, that is surely a matter for rejoicing rather than grief, as it is merely the continuance of an apparently natural law in the spiritual world, acting from the inferior upon the superior, which may be worded thus, Whosoever will be great, let him be flayed alive. Virgil was declared by Pliny to be destitute of invention, Aristotle was styled ignorant, vain, and ambitious by both Cicero and Plutarch. Plato was so jealous of Democritus that he proposed to burn up all his works. Sophocles was brought to trial by his own children as a lunatic. Horace was accused of stealing from all the minor Greek poets. And so on, in the same way, down to our own times. Pope went so far as to make a collection of all the libels passed upon him, and had them preserved and bound with singular care though I believe no one now knows where to find these scandalous splutterings of Grub Street. Swift is reported to have said to the irate author of the Dunciad, Give me a shilling, and I will ensure you that posterity shall never know one single enemy against you, excepting those whose memory you yourself have preserved. Herein is a profound truth. The malicious enemies of a great author only become known to the public through the mistaken condescension of the great author's notice. Milton's life was embittered by the contemptible spite of one Salmasius, who was Salmasius, we ask nowadays? We do not ask who was Milton. Salmasius was the author of the Defensio Regi, or Defense of Kings, a poor piece of work long ago forgotten, and he was the procurer of foul libel against the author of Paradise Lost, one of England's greatest and noblest men. What small claim he has to the world's memory arises merely from his viciousness, for not only did he make use of the lowest tools to aid him in conspiring against Milton's reputation, but he spread the grossest lies broadcast, even accusing the poet of having a hideous personal appearance, quote, a puny piece of a man, a homunculus, a dwarf deprived of the human figure, a contemptible pedagogue, end quote. When the despicable slanderer learned the fact that Milton, so far from answering to this description, was of a pleasing and attractive appearance, he immediately changed his tactics and began to attack his moral character, which, as even Milton's bitterest political enemies knew, was austerely above the very shadow of suspicion. It was said that the poet's overzealousness in answering the calumnies of Salmasius cost him his eyesight, which, if true, was surely regrettable. 
Some Asius died dishonored and disgraced, as such a cowardly brute deserved to die. Milton still holds his glorious place in England's literary history. So it was, so it is, so it ever will be. Greatness is always envied. It is only mediocrity that can boast of a host of friends. When you have resolved to be great, says Emerson, abide by yourself and do not weakly try to reconcile yourself with the world. It is impossible to quote one single instance of a truly great man existing without his calumniators. And the life literary without any enemies would be a shabby go-kart, or, as our American cousins put it, a one-horse concern. Some lines that were taught to me when I was a child seem appropriate to this subject, and I quote them here for the benefit of any struggling units of the life literary, who may haply be in need. You have no enemies, you say? Alas, my friend, the boast is poor. He who has mingled in the fray of duty that the brave endure must have made foes. If you have none, small is the work that you have done. You've hit no traitor on the hip. You've dashed no cup from perjured lip. You've never turned the wrong to right. You've been a coward in the fight. But it is perhaps time that I should drop the masculine personal pronoun for the feminine, and being a woman, treat of the life literary from the woman's point of view. In olden days, the profession of literature was looked upon as a terrible thing for a woman to engage in, and the observations of some very kindly and chivalrous writers on this subject are not without pathos. To quote one example only, can anything be more quaintly droll at this time of day than the following? Of all the sorrows in which the female character may participate, there are few more affecting than those of an authoress. Often insulated and unprotected in society, with all the sensibility of the sex, encountering miseries which break the spirits of men. This delicate expression of sympathy for a woman's literary struggles was written by the elder Disraeli as late as 1840. Truly, we have raced along the rails of progress since then at express speed, and the affecting sorrows of an authoress, with a capital A, now affect nobody except insofar as they make copy for the callow journalist to hang a string of cheap sneers upon. The authoress must take part with the author in the general rough and tumble of life, and she cannot too quickly learn the truth that when once she enters the literary arena, where men are already fisticuffing and elbowing each other remorselessly, she will be met chiefly with kicks and no happens. She must fight like the rest, unless she prefers to lie down and be walked over. If she elects to try for a first place, it will take her all her time to win it, and win one to hold it. And in the event of her securing success, she must not expect any chivalrous consideration from the opposite sex, or any special kindness and sympathy from her own. For the men will consider her out of her sphere if she writes books instead of producing babies, and the women will, in nine cases out of ten, begrudge her the freedom and independence she enjoys, particularly if such freedom and independence be allied to fortune and fame. This all goes without saying. It has to be understood and accepted uncomplainingly. The old-fashioned grace of chivalry to women, once so proudly lauded by poets and essayists as the distinguishing trait of all manly men, is not to be relied on in the life literary. For there it is as dead as doornails. Men can be found in the literary profession who will do anything to down a woman in the, in the same calling, and if they cannot for shame's sake do it openly, they will do it behind her back. Tis pitiful, tis wondrous pitiful, for the men. But if the woman concerned has studied her art to any purpose, she will accept calumny as a compliment, slander as a votive wreath, and envy, hatred, and all uncharitableness, from which, with pious hypocrisy, the most envious and uncharitable persons pray good lord deliver us every Sunday, 
as so many tokens and proofs of her admitted power. And none of these things need disturb the equanimity of the life literary. Can any man cast me out of the universe? He cannot. But whithersoever I may go, there will be the sun and the moon and the stars and visions and communion with the gods. Speaking as a woman, I can quite understand and appreciate all the little difficulties, irritations, and trials incident to a woman's career in literature. And though I myself welcome such difficulties, as so many incentives to fresh effort, I know that there are many of the sex who, growing weary and discouraged, are not able to adopt this attitude. And looking back into the past, one is bound to see a host of brilliant women done to death by cruel injustice and misrepresentation, a state of things which is quite likely to be continued as long as humanity endures. But no useful object is served by brooding over this apparently incurable evil. The noble army of martyrs who praise the Lord in the Te Deum are likely to be of the sex feminine. But what does that matter? It is more glorious to be martyred than to die of overeating and general plethora. Moreover, mental or intellectual martyrdom is a necessary ingredient for the happy life. A touch of it is like the toothache, helping one to be duly thankful when the pain ceases. For if we never understood trouble, we should never taste the full measure of joy. One thing can be very well dispensed with by both men and women who look for happiness in the life literary, and that is the uneasy hankering after what is called fame. Fame has a habit of settling its halo on the elected brows without any outside advice or assistance. Those authors who are destined for it will assuredly win it, though all the world should intervene. Those for whom it is not intended must content themselves with the temporary notoriety of pretty newspaper puffs and stock compliments such as the renowned or well-known or admired author or authoress, and be glad and grateful for these meaningless terms, inasmuch as the higher fame itself, at its utmost, is only a brief and very often inaccurate line in history. The rewards and emoluments of the happy life, such as I have always found the life literary to be, are manifold and frequently incongruous. They may be considered in two sections, the outward or apparent, and the interior or invisible. Concerning these, I can only, of course, speak from my own experience. The outward or apparent occur, so far as I myself am concerned, as follows. 1. Certain payments, small or large, made by publishers who undertake to present one's brain work to the world in print, and who do the best they can for their authors, as well as for themselves. 2. Public appreciation and condemnation, about equally divided. 3. Critical praise and censure, six of one and half a dozen of the other. Four, endless requests for autographs. Five, innumerable begging letters. Six, imperative, sometimes threatening, demands for interviews. Seven, hundreds of love letters. Eight, continual offers of marriage, average number one per week. Nine, Shoals of manuscripts sent by literary aspirants to be placed or recommended. 10. Free circulation of lies, caricatures, and slanders concerning oneself, one's personality, friends, ways of work, and general surroundings. 11. The grudging and bitter animosity of rival contemporaries. 12. Persistent public and private misrepresentation of one's character, aims, and intentions. All these things taken together weigh very little when compared with the other side of the medal, the interior and invisible delight and charm of the life literary. 
the unpurchasable and never-failing happiness, which no external advantage can give, no inimical influence take away. It is well-nigh impossible to enumerate the pleasures that attend the lover and servant of literature. They are multitudinous, and like all things spiritual, outweigh all things temporal. Here are just a few among the ceaseless favors of the gods. 1. The power and affluence of creative thought. 2. A perpetual sense of intimate participation in the wonders of nature and art. 3. A keen perception of the beautiful. 4. Intense delight in the genius of all great men and women. 5. A cheerful and contented spirit. 6. Constant variety of occupation. 7. Joy in simple things. 8. The love of friends that are tried and true. 9. The never-wearying interest of working to try and give pleasure to one's reading public. 10. The gifts and glories of imagination. 11. Tranquility of mind. 12. Firm faith in noble ideals. And to quote from Walt Whitman, what the inward sense or spirit of the happiness of the life literary really is, the disciple of literature may say, quote, I will show that there is no imperfection in the present and can be none in the future, and I will show that, whatever happens to anybody, it may be turned to beautiful results, end quote. Were all the lives in the world offered to me for my choice, from the estate of queens to that of commoners, I would choose the life literary in preference to any other as ensuring the greatest happiness. It is full of the most lasting pleasure. It offers the most varied entertainment. All the arts and sciences group themselves naturally around it as with it and of it. For the literary student is, or should be, as devout a lover of music as of poetry, as ardent an admirer of painting and sculpture as of history and philosophy. That is, if complete enjoyment of the literary gift is to be possessed completely. I take it, of course, for granted, in this matter of the happy life, that the individual concerned, whether male or female, is neither dyspeptic nor bilious, nor afflicted with the incurable ennui of utter selfishness, nor addicted to dram or drug drinking, because under unnatural conditions the mind itself becomes unnatural, and the life literary is no more productive of happiness than any other life that is self-poisoned at its source. But given a sane mind in a sound body, a clear brain, a quick perception, a keen imagination, a warm heart, and a never-to-be-parted-with ideal of humanity at its best, noblest, and purest, then the life literary, with all the advantages it bestows, the continuous education it fosters, the refinement of taste it engenders, the love and sympathy of unknown thousands of one's fellow creatures with it, which it brings, is the sweetest, most satisfying, most healthful and happy life in the world. Moreover, it is a life of power and responsibility, a life that forms character and tests courage. We soon learn to know the force of a thinker in our midst, whether man or woman. We soon realize who it is that sends the lightning of truth across our murky sky, when we see a sudden swarm of cowards scurrying away from the storm and trying to shelter themselves under a haystack of lies. 
and we invariably respect whosoever has the valor of his or her opinions and the strength to enunciate them boldly and convincingly with a supreme indifference to conventional conveniences. For to know the truth, says an Arabian sage, is a great thing for thyself, but to tell the truth to others is a greater thing for the world. was quite a treatise on the happy life and I have lots to say. First is that I'm going to try to round up all of the references Curly makes in the essay and link to them if they're available online in the show notes or at least clarify what they are when possible in the show notes. Um, there are lots of references. Okay, so I'm just going to move through my notes um, page by page, I guess. There's a lot, there's a lot to be said. I'm not going to bog you down with details here. Um, but first up, this quote. For chiefest among the joys of the life literary are its splendid independence, its right of free opinion, and its ability to express that opinion. An author is bound to no person, no place, and no party unless he or she willfully elects to be so bound. I think, so a lot of my response to this piece is as a creative writer, as a practicing creative writer who's, um, been kind of increasingly intentionally moving to become a professional creative writer. Um, and I think one of the most pressing issues that I see as a creative writer working today is that you really should be like bound to convictions and ideals. Like, no, you don't have to be towing a party line, but everything we write is from a specific perspective and experience of the world, and therefore everything we write is political, whether we like it or not. That's just how things are. And if we're really intentional about that and trying to think through how we can benefit people instead of harm them and include people instead of exclude them, then I think that's a really powerful way to be a writer. So, I mean, maybe I don't have sort of the qualification to disagree with Corelli, but I want to push back a little bit against that here. Okay, moving on. Uh, the next thing that I've noted is um, there's sort of a repeated reference to authors with dyspepsia, and this is part of Corelli's expert shade throwing, I think. So dyspepsia is kind of indigestion, generally speaking, but it often kind of uh, is synonymous with some symptoms that mm, are <laughs> a little bit um, also doubling as insults, so, so um, such as being bloated, nauseous, and burping a lot um, from eating or drinking too much. So she drives this sort of subtle shade-throwing home uh, in, in a few paragraphs in a way that is really clever. Um, so she moves from dyspepsia to a more kind of clear image, um, to kind of generate what I have written in the margins is a sick burn. So she's talking about women writers at this point, and she says women are more likely to be martyrs. So, uh, I think she means in terms of, like, literary praise and, like, recognition, right? And then she says, <clears throat> 
it is more glorious to be martyred than to die of overeating and general plethora. Moreover, mental or intellectual martyrdom is a necessary ingredient for the happy life. So basically, she's saying <laughs> dude martyrs are these sort of bloated, burping, overfed um, hacks. Um, <laughs> okay, here is probably my biggest pet peeve in this piece, which is that, um, like a lot of discourse on, on uh, the writing life, even today, it is super hecking ableist. So Corelli writes that, quote, nothing can be more deplorable than the position of any author who depends for success on a clique of distinguished or society persons, dot, 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 dot. So basically she's saying that writers who don't have the correct attitude or approach or are into writing for the wrong reasons experience a, quote, mere miserable restlessness and constant craving after fresh excitement, which gradually breeds nervous troubles and disturbs that fine and even balance of brain without which no clear or convincing thought is possible, end quote. Um, <laughs> you can tell I'm a little bit salty. I am a neurodivergent writer, and uh, I come up against this a lot, that you can't write if you're not, like, mentally balanced, like she's saying here, and um, here's the deal, that's patently false. You can write in all kinds of ways. You can write academically, you can write creatively. Yeah, you don't have to be some sort of ideal, perfectly healthy person to write things that are worth people's time. There's another sort of a layer in this very paragraph. She writes, Authors who deliberately prostitute their talents to the writing of lewd matter unfit to be handled by cleanly-minded men and women need never hope to possess that happy and studious peace, which comes from the pure intent to do the best purely and leave to God the rest. And there's a quote here that is unattributed, which I'll try to track down. But um, it's an interesting, this is sort of internalized literary snobbishness. And I know, like, Corelli did feel that she was writing high art, but at the same time, let's be honest, she was writing genre fiction. And there's this sort of, like, yeah, like, anti-genre sentiment here. You you can't write, quote, lewd matter. Um, and, and what I mean by that is often, like, she, she might be talking about people who are writing things like pornography, but more likely she's talking about people who are writing the same genres she is. Sensation fiction or, you know, like, popular fiction. Um, granted, she has religious themes in almost everything she writes, but, and, and not all writers did, but, but still, like, she's making some really weird hair-splitty decisions here. So another kind of big point that Corelli hits on in, in um, The Life Literary and The Happy Life um, is that sort of, sort of this um, sanctified poverty how poverty can only increase your art, that you don't need to eat enough or have financial security to be an artist. And no, you don't. You can create art in these sort of highly precarious situations. But she's tapping into another myth that's still really pervasive, which is that you have to be sort of the starving artist stereotype to make good art, which is not true. You can be financially secure and be, be like getting medical attention and be eating enough and, you know, able to buy new clothes on the regular and still make amazing art. In fact, like that sort of peace of mind gives you more time and space to make good art. So I think kind of to sort of sum up my thoughts on this, my somewhat admittedly scattered thoughts 
Um, I've recorded this two and a half times and it's been tricky, not only because of um, the loudness of my environment recently, but also um, because of just how the syntactic complexity of this piece. Um, this is really sort of tongue-tie twistery to read through. Um, but anyway, um, Corelli is, I mean, while she's tapping into sort of these tropes and stereotypes in writing this piece, including one that I didn't really mention, which is the, um, not like all the other girls trope, in which she kind of distinguishes herself from all other women writers, um, at length, uh, Corelli is still writing from her own experience of, um, being a professional author, and the picture, overall picture we get, even though she keeps harping on this idea of the happy life, is one of isolation. So none of her contemporaries are friends. She doesn't have this circle of female friends, um, of women writers who are also friends, and I think that is probably the saddest thing in this piece, that not only is she like, as a woman writer, automatically up against men who don't want to see her succeed, she also can't find a place with women writers. Now, whether this is entirely all the other women writers' fault or partly her own, there's not really anything we can say about that, but it is still, nevertheless, this kind of picture of solitary loneliness, which she tries to put a brave face on by quoting Emerson's um, self-reliance essay, um, I think it's self-reliance, it may be friendship, um, and also quoting Whitman as this sort of transcendental bravado about what writers can do. And I think, you know, parts of what she's saying are really powerful. I really liked in the list of the internal kind of qualities of the life literary, her notes that some of the things that come from being a writer are a keen perception of the beautiful, a constant variety of occupation, firm faith in noble ideals, the gifts and glories of imagination, a perpetual sense of intimate participation in the wonders of nature and art. Those things are really beautiful, and I think it's clear that Curly does find joy in what she calls the life literary, but it's also clear that it's a lonely life for her. So maybe this new year, if you're a writer, resolve to make some writing buddies. Find yourself a writing community. Be part of a community. Reach out to people online if you can, if you don't have anyone local to reach out to. Um, and don't fall into this kind of ableist thinking that you need to be, quote, normal to write well, or that you need to be a starving artist to write well that you need to put yourself up against everyone else and compete with everyone to write well. All right, that's it for me, y'all. Um, thank you, as always, for listening, and please tune back in at the end of the month for our next biographical episode on the life of Martin R. Delaney. Oh, oh, one more thing. We are talking about potentially phasing out the writing episodes and just sort of amping up our discussion of writing process in our biography episodes. Um, that would mean that we're not reading these extended selections of writers' work anymore, and it would probably free up our time to do more biographical episodes, so to include more authors per season. 
Um, let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter, or drop us a line at victorianscribblers at outlook.com. That's all one word, victorianscribblers at outlook.com. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. These insults are the best. Who would be such a useless block of stone? Such a senseless lump of unvalued clay?